0: Following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Well, please be finding 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 in your Bibles. Today we're going to focus on God as Father as we look closely at the Trinity. We're going to start by seeing some basic truths about the Trinity and then specifically, what does this passage reveal to us? about the Father. So if you would, please stand with me out of reverence and honor for God and his word. I'm gonna read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses two through five. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts and in this assembly today, Lord, whatever work you want to do in us. You are powerful. You are all-powerful. And you use your word by your spirit to change us, to comfort us, to challenge us. And may we yield to you all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So we are in week two of Behold Your God, and we look at the Trinity, and uh, the first question really that we need to look at is, how and when was the Trinity revealed? How was it revealed? And some will say that in the different Old Testament allusions to Christ's deity, or the plural pronoun us, referring to God in Genesis 1 or as we saw last week in Isaiah chapter six, but as we see, that is not the case. Those, those things are hinting at the Trinity, but it doesn't fully reveal the Trinity. American pastor and theologian B.B. Warfield had something to say about this. In fact, you know he lived from 1851 to 1921, and there's something about him totally off topic here, but I, I just have to share it with you. He spent a lot of time precisely studying the word of God. And one of the reasons he did that is because he chose early on to stay home because his wife was very sick, she was homebound, and he needed to care for his wife. But in providence of God, that enabled him to also have time uh, to study the word and, and not be out and about everywhere, and he has left us some rich treasures that God has richly blessed. But one of the things he said is this, The Old Testament can be likened to a dark chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. Adding light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out in clear view much of what is in it but was only dimly or not at all perceived before. The idea behind this is that the mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament but underlies the entire Old Testament revelation. The Trinity has always been true, but when did the Trinity become uh, knowable to humans? When could we see the truth of the Trinity? And the answer is this, it appeared in the incarnation of God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's when the Trinity came into full view. The Trinity is revealed by the Son, coming in the flesh and the spirit indwelling the church. And the trinity then was revealed between the two testaments, in the ministry of Christ in founding the church, in the ministry of the spirit indwelling the church, and is recorded for us in the New Testament, but it took place before the New Testament was written. The revelation of the trinity is this, that the incarnation of God the Son and the outspouring of God the Holy Spirit clearly reveals the trinity. The Trinity is revealed in the gospel actions of the triune God in redeeming fallen sinners. The Father, you see the Father loving his people and sending his Son. You see the Son giving himself in the place of lost sinners. You see the Spirit then indwelling and conforming us to the image of Christ. You see the Trinity at work in saving. James White put it this way, early believers spoke easily of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit without giving the slightest indication that they found anything strange in joining these divine persons in the one work of salvation in the edification of the church. You could say it this way, that the Trinity comes into full bloom in the New Testament. Various passages reveal it clearly. You have passages with Trinitarian formulas where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present in the passage and named. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, here is Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You go on to Romans in chapter 14 verses 17 and 18 where it says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. You see it also in Romans 15, 16. You move on to 1 Corinthians chapter two and Paul says in verse two, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. It goes on in 1 Corinthians 6:11 and 12 verses 4 through 6. You move into 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, and it says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. He has put his seal on us, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There's a benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Trinitarian formula. Ephesians 2, 18, for through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It goes on in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 17, and 4, verses 4 through 6, and you see it in Colossians chapter one, you see it in 2 Thessalonians chapter two. We see the Trinity in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses two through five that we're looking at today. Says we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For You know, beloved, uh, beloved loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Paul is, is writing to a church to assure them that their faith is not in vain. Thessalonica was the capital of Roman Macedonia at the time and it was connected to major trade routes and many visitors would come through and would be bringing ideas contrary to biblical truth. And so Paul is writing this heartfelt letter to the people to encourage these new believers and then to assure them regarding the eternal destiny of believers that have died. He's reminding them of the coming of the Lord. He's exhorting them to live godly lives to the glory of God. He tells them you need to be at peace with one another. You need to give thanks to God in everything. This is the place that Paul went on his second missionary journey. And he was forced to flee because of Jewish opposition. He sends Timothy. Timothy gives a good report. He says they are growing in their faith. They are solid. They are growing as God desires. They didn't listen to the lies. No, in in chapter two, verse 13, it tells us they receive the word of God for what it really is. God's word that does its work in all who believe. Have you thought about that recently if you're a believer today? That God's word as you take it in, as you engage with it, that it is doing a work in you? Holy Spirit using the word of God and the lives of the people of God for the glory of God. And one of my goals in preaching the Trinity is that you would know and love God more. We've been through the book of Romans. Two and a half years through the book of Romans. We're gonna start Ecclesiastes, but I wanted to pause and say, let's just behold the glory of God that we could understand his word and his ways in ways that, that God intends. And, and the reason is that we would worship better, that we would live better. Live in light and in line with the word of God. How do you know if you're living as God intends? You match it up with the word of God. Are you growing in your love for God? Are you growing in in experiencing who he is and learning what he does? The Trinity is a God you can know and forever grow to know better. Now, I don't know many Christians who would deny that God is triune. How many Christians I know that would say, well, there's not a Trinity. But many Christians understand vital aspects of the Trinity, and it causes their Christian experience and even their worship and even their witness to be less than God intends. And we hope that God would would straighten us out. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 1, verses two through five, it begins this way in verse two, we give thanks to God. Paul doesn't stop and say, now let me explain the Trinity for you. He just goes on to show that God is triune. We give thanks to God always for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. Let me stop here and give you some basics on the Trinity. We we need this. I want to give you three Bible basics about the triune nature of God, and these are basics that are often misunderstood and often confused in the minds of many professing Christians. And the first is this. There is one God. There's one God. The second is, there are three divine persons. One God, three divine persons. And the third is this. The persons are co-equal and co-eternal. There's one God. There are three divine persons, and the persons are co-equal and co-eternal. Let's start with the first. There is one God. We're in the realm of monotheism. We believe there is one God. James White gives this definition. Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now we're talking here about God's being in contrast with his persons. You need to make sure you have those terms clear. Here we're talking about there being one God, the being of God. His being is one. He is unique. He is undivided. He is indivisible. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology said "There, there is in the divine being but one indivisible essence. One God, and this God is in three divine persons. Now, this is not three beings that are one being. This is not three persons that are one person. That would be contradictory. Don't misrepresent the Bible. Three divine persons, not three divine beings. Now, don't read the term person the way you usually read it. Uh, Usually, we all think about a finite human being, right? when you think about a person. But when person is spoken of in terms of the three persons of the Trinity, we are speaking differently than when we are speaking of ourselves. Berkhoff says that in this one divine being, there are three persons or individual subsistences. The whole undivided essence of God belongs equally to each of the three persons. Let me stop right there, because you're probably confused. The church confesses the trinity to be a mystery beyond human comprehension. So if you're sitting here now going, I don't get it completely, praise God. Because that means you're not God, and that means you're finite, and you're not infinite. And God has revealed himself to be exactly who he is. It's when you try to over-explain it that you get yourself in trouble. I think about when you think of a person, you think of a body, a physical body, you think of an individuals in a separate place, a location, you think of physical attributes like height and weight and age, that's how we use the term person, someone who's separate, different, limited. When we use person to describe God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just don't drag that baggage in the door with you. The three persons, here's the third truth, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. See, the relationship among them is eternal. They eternally existed in a unique relationship. Each one of them is eternal and co-equal with the others as to their divine nature. Each fully shares the one being that is God. So that doesn't mean, you know, the Father's a third, the Son's a third, and the Holy Spirit is a third. No, each is fully God, co-equal with the others eternally. It doesn't mean that the Father is the Son and the Son is the Spirit. Now, some don't realize that and they say wacky things. Jesus was not praying to himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was never a time... When the Father was not the Father, or the Son was not the Son, or the Spirit was not the Spirit. And this is hard for us to grasp. I mean, we exist in time. We wear watches. We're always looking at the clock. We're bounded by time, by the day of our birth, and then today, right this moment. But the eternal relationship of the Trinity exists outside the realm of time. This is why it blows your mind. This is why you stand back in awestruck wonder at the goodness and the greatness and the majesty and the holiness of God. Bible believers believe this doctrine of the Trinity. Now you might be out discussing the Trinity with someone and it might not go so well if you don't identify these three biblical truths. There is one God, one being of God in three persons and the persons are Co-eternal and co-equal. Now someone is going to say to you, well, wait, wait, you say you believe the Bible only and you're using a, a term, a word that is not found in the Bible? You're using Trinity? Well, it's the best we've come up with over thousands of years. I'm thinking we shouldn't you know, trifle with this one and try to come up with a new term. It's lasted a long time, and here's why we use it. Here's your answer Well, I must do so because the Bible clearly teaches that there is one God, one being, in three persons who are co-equal and co-eternal. So we have to use this term. Every error, every heresy regarding the Trinity originates in denying that there is one God in three persons that are co-equal and co-eternal. So believing the Bible leads to the doctrine of the Trinity, leads you to believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in essence, three in person. What I found helpful is uh, the Trinity shield, and I'll put the first one up for you here. It's from the 15th or 16th century, and you, it's in Latin, you know, and so you can't really read it, but it looks sweet, right? It looks pretty. Let me give you the next one. This is the simple one. It doesn't look as nice, but it, it makes sense to us. Now, you deny or misunderstand any of these truths, you're gonna get yourself in trouble. If you deny that there is only one God, you're gonna lean towards polytheism, where there are many gods. You're gonna get away from monotheism, that's not good. (laughs) If you deny that all three persons of God are equal, you're gonna believe in subordinationism, which is one of the hot topics among theologians right now that even professing Christians are worried about and arguing about. You're gonna say, well, one is greater than the other if you deny that all three persons of God are equal. If you deny the existence of three persons, you're gonna get modalism, which says God exists in three modes and is only one person. All of those are errors, all of those are wrong. Here's what Michael Reeves says about it. You need to read his book, Delighting in the Trinity. He says, look, instead of starting from scratch and just seeing what the Bible says about it, you know, who the triune God is according to the Bible? And by the way, he's a radically different sort of being from any other candidate for God. He says, we try to stuff Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into how we've always thought about God. And we're like a pit bull with a tennis ball with our ideas, aren't we? We just like, we, we love the way we think, and so what we do is we fashion God around our assumptions. Our minds rebel against the thought of a God who is not as we would expect. Well, I've always thought of God this way, and so, you know, let me have my box. So we assume things like, well, God is one person, not three. And you say things like, well, it feels like I'm trying to squeeze, you know, uh, two extra people into my luggage and my understanding about God. And for you, uh, the Trinity becomes like an awkward appendix. God is who he has revealed himself in the word. In the Bible, the Lord God uh, is completely different from Baal and Dagon and Molech and Artemis. In fact, you look around the world, in all times, the world is always filled with many different candidates for God. Let me give you a practical example that will probably hit us where we live because you probably all know someone who's a Muslim. Well, the Quran explicitly distinguishes Allah from the God described in the Bible. Here's what the Quran says. Say not Trinity, desist. It will be better for you, for God is one God. Glory be to him. Far exalted is he above having a son. Say Allah is one, and all on him depend. He begets not, nor is he begotten, and none is like him. So Muslims see Allah as a single person God. A single person God cannot be loving. In no way is he a father to them. They say, he begets not. In no way to them is he a son, nor is he begotten. So one person, not three. All is completely different from the God of the Bible. He exists and functions in a completely different way than the God of the Bible, from the Holy Spirit and from the Son and from the Father. So Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. I've made this mistake before. I've said this before. I've said, well, they they accept the Old Testament. We worship the same God. No, they don't. They have a God of their own making. You cannot say they accept the Old Testament. They worship the same God. They deny that God is triune. The truth is, God is three in one. Not a single person God. And there is no contradiction there, there is just mystery. Is, is this why it leaves you as a believer with, with awestruck wonder at the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God? That's, you know what this does? It helps you be compassionate towards unbelievers that are trapped in systems of belief that are false. You can actually show them the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. that was a really long intro. Now we're going to focus on God the Father. Look with me at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father. Well, that's an interesting thing. Our God and Father. Now if I were to ask you, what's the first thing that you think of as God's primary role? Like if you had to start just at the beginning and say, what is God first? Many would say creator. Many would say ruler. Many think of God primarily as creator and ruler, but that is not his starting place. That is not God's starting place. He is first Father. Father. Foremost Father. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. You could ask this question What was God doing before creation? What was God doing before creation? John 17 20 gives us the answer. He was loving his son before the creation of the world. Jesus says, Father you love me before the creation of the world. He is first the loving Father. The most foundational thing about God is not something abstract, but the fact that he is Father. In fact, the Bible equates God and Father as one. The Lord calls Israel my firstborn son, Exodus 4.22. He carries his people, Deuteronomy 1.31, as a father carries his son. Deuteronomy 8.5, he disciplines them as a man disciplines his son. Psalm 103, verse 13: As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. In Jeremiah 3:19, he says, I would gladly treat you like sons and give you. A desirable land, if you were to call me Father and not turn away from following me. In Isaiah 63, verse 16, we read these words, you are our Father, you, O Lord, are our Father. The Old Testament name Abijah means the Lord is my Father. Jesus refers to God as Father, uh, continually. He is directing prayer to our Father tells his disciples, he will return. He says, I will return to my father and your father, to my God and your God, John 20, 17. Paul and Peter, both are referring to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 15, 16, 1 Peter 1, 3. Paul writes of one God, the father, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. The God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 3. Then Hebrews tells us, God is treating every believer as sons, or what son is not disciplined by his Father? Hebrews 12, seven. Before all things, God is Father. Now what does this passage reveal about God the Father? I'm gonna bring out three things. And we're gonna come back to this passage over the next two weeks as we look at God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, but let's, let's point out in this passage What this reveals about God the Father, and the first thing it reveals is the Father's presence, the Father's presence, that he is with his children. Verse two says, we give thanks to God always for you constantly. So this beloved church is being prayed for all the time, even without interruption, unceasingly mentioning or remembering them in their prayers, and Paul is saying this, and he says in verse 3, we're remembering you before our God and Father. Before means in the presence of. In the presence of God, he is calling to mind and making mention of them to God. Because God is present, he is with his people, there is closeness, there is intimacy, there is knowledge, there is communion, there is fellowship. He has promised, I will be with you. He said to Moses in Exodus thirty-three, fourteen: 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So here we have a holy God condescending to be with his people. If you're a believer today and you have Believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus died for your sins in your place on the cross. You believe he was buried. You believe he rose on the third day. You believe he ascended to the Father. You believe that he is returning. Judgment for those who will not believe and blessing, everlasting blessing for those who believe. You believe that? Then you can come boldly to the throne of grace. That You can... You're in God's presence because he is always with you. Christ lives in you. The Father's presence. You know, the word starts with God, right? In the beginning, God it makes perfect sense. We saw this last week in Isaiah 6. In the presence of a holy God, we are humbled. We see our sinfulness. God is gracious in Christ to us. He is so kind to us. He forgives us of our sins when we come humbly confessing his righteousness and our sinfulness because he is holy. In Psalm 46, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. On March 2nd, 1791, John Wesley completed his earthly race and he grasped the hands of his Loved ones, and he declares, best of all is God is with us. That's the best of all. The presence of the Father assuring his children. If you're a believer today, know that God is with you always. Whatever you go through, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're experiencing, God is with you. Move on to verse four. And we see the father's love. The father's love. It says, we know brothers loved by God. He's talking about the continuing love of God that he shows to his people because he is lovingly fatherly. Someone said this. I I, I thought it was, so true and kind of funny. It's not as if God has a nice blob of fathery icing on top. He is father all the way down, and all he does, he does as father. He creates as father, and he rules as father. John Calvin once wrote, we are in the very order of things diligently to contemplate God's fatherly love. Believer, today, are you contemplating um, loving, uh, delighting in God's fatherly love for you? In Psalm 136, verse one, we read, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And that phrase, his steadfast love endures forever, is repeated 26 times every verse of that Psalm. If you're not grasping the love of God for you, just dwell on Psalm 136. Daily, until you grasp it. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. What wonder that we should be called the children of God? That every Christian is just blown away the fact that God would save them. Sinful as they know they are. And then it says, and so we are. We are the children of God. He loves us. Of course, there are wrong views of the Father's love. One view that some Christians like to hold to is, well, God 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 loves me no matter what. God always keeps loving me no matter how sinful I live. He's gonna ignore it. Not biblical. It's more like a godly parent who loves their child too much to allow them to continue in sin and disobedience. But some parents just wanna give their kids whatever they want because they think that's loving. How about the next time, uh, grandparents or parents, how about the next time a young, young child says, I want that bee. I See it on the ground, I'm gonna go get it. You're like, well, I love you, so I gotta give you what you want. Go get it. Hug it. Hold it. I actually did that one time when I was a kid, when I was four years old. My parents were like, no. They love me. They don't want me to have that. Hebrews 12 tells us God disciplines every son whom he receives. See, God's love is real love. And it disciplines those it loves. Don't put mankind's standards on God. You know, again, some parents are going uh, to, you know, uh, ignore their kids' misbehavior and think they're being loving when actually they're treating them shamefully. Think about this, a disobedient and unrepentant Christian cannot keep claiming, well, the love of God covers me, I can just do whatever I want. No, you need to repent of your sins as the Holy Spirit convicts you or your heart's gonna get cauterized. It's gonna get calloused. You fracture your relationship with your heavenly father? But if there's repentance of sin, if there, God just unrelentingly loves the repentant heart. Unrelenting love for the repentant. Now, if there's outright disobedience, if there's unforgiveness, if there's unkindness, if there's unlove, if there's judgment, if there's rejecting others, a Christian cannot just claim, oh, God's just gonna keep loving me limitlessly and I get to skate scot-free. No, God unrelentingly loves the repentant heart. Isaiah 66, two, here's what he says. To this one I will look. to The one who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. We see the Father's presence, we see the Father's love in this passage. And then, thirdly, we see the Father's choice. Again, in verse four, we know, those beloved of God, that he has chosen you. He has chosen you. This is the word for election. This is where God says, I have chosen you and you are loved. Choosing, evidenced by the outworking of the grace of God, the providence of God and regenerating the spiritually dead and bringing them to life and drawing sinners to himself and there are signs of life. Go over to Ephesians chapter one. In Ephesians chapter one, verses one through three, It starts this way, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. What this passage is telling us about the Father is that the Father is a present, loving Choosing Father who causes his children to thrive in Christ. This is why over and over again, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, good job, way to go. You're following the word. You're believing God. And look what God is doing. And he even is able to say, and you know what kind of people we are. We were were in front of you living in this way. Because God is a present, loving Choosing father who causes his children to thrive in Christ. So how does this passage speak to your situation? Let's go through this. Let's talk about the father's presence. In the the father's presence, you need need his assuring word. Word. You think about a young child afraid in the middle of the night and running to mommy or daddy. Uh, They had a bad dream and they needed to be comforted and no parent turns them away. You you bring them up and scoop them up in your arms and you just comfort them. You, You reassure them. You say, I'm with you. Everything's gonna be okay. You need God's assuring word for comfort, for assurance. You need the cleansing word. Think about it, if you have toxins in your body, you need something, an agent of cleansing and purifying that pulls out the toxins. To eliminate the toxins, you need something stronger than the toxins to pull them out, right? Well, the word of God is extremely powerful, and God's reassuring voice is his written word, and when the word speaks, God speaks, and this is what we need every day. The reassuring word of God. Just heard the story of a friend of mine Well, the other day she said, I have been sober for 42 years, praise God. Her testimony is that reading the word of God daily makes all the difference. She said, big day, 42 years of sobriety, daily Bible reading is undoubtedly the reason I've enjoyed my sobriety. 2 Timothy 3 tells us the word of God is able to make us wise for salvation. Hebrews 4 tells us the word of God is powerful. It is piercing, it's discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart. It knows your, your motives, God knows. First Thessalonians 2.13, it does its work in you. So you have gotta remember, God is always with you and his reassuring word that is inspired and infallible and inerrant speaks. So however you feel, let the word of God and, the, and his presence override What a comfort to know that the truth does not lie in your mind, but with God Almighty, as He has revealed Himself in the Word of God. Talk about the Father's love. You need God's accepting forgiveness. God's accepting forgiveness. See, we forgive and we say, you know, okay, I forgive you because I know I have to forgive you, but I'm still going to hold it against you. That's not forgiveness. We say, oh I forgave you, but I remember it every time I think of you. That's not forgiveness. We say, I forgave you, and I forgive you, but I'm gonna let it color my, my thoughts of you and my suspicions of you going forward. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is when you let it go and you leave it in God's hands. But here is God forgiving immeasurably God loves, God gives gloriously because he is glorious, and he freely forgives. Here's what a lot of people think about God Oh, he's some mean, ogre tyrant who's angry and created me to demand from me and take from me. You just described the devil. The contrast between God and the devil could not be more stark. The devil steals, kills, and destroys. The devil is murderous and lying and scheming and devious. But God, the triune God, he is super abundant in love. He is generous with his grace. He is literally uh, magnificent, um, radiant, majestic, and he is self-giving. See, God's nature is to share himself. Jonathan Edwards says that God's pleasure is a pleasure in diffusing and communicating to the creature more than receiving from the creature. You know what that means if you're a believer today? It means you're not nameless and faceless to God. It means that God isn't looking at you, wagging his finger at you every time you step out of line. It means that God is with you and he loves you and he, he loves you too much to keep you going on in sin, so you're convicted of your sin, you're disciplined for your sin, but you are not nameless and faceless. He knows you, he loves you, he cares for you. You think about it. We all forget names. Uh, You know, we see someone and we're like, buddy, (laughs) because we forget their name, you know. And then then when you wear the name tag, everyone's looking at your name tag version. You're like, you didn't know my name until you saw my name tag. But God remembers his mercy toward you. He loves you immensely and he knows you intimately. He knows the hairs that are on your head. How many hairs are on your head? He knows every word. Before it comes out of your mouth. He knows how many days he gave you and he ordained for you before you even had one day as a brand new little baby. And he forgives you freely in love in Christ. And we keep worrying if God's going to change his, his plans. He's going to change his terms. He's going to find out that there's just something about us that is so hard. Heinous and so horrendous that he's going to change his mind about us, but guess what? Your sin was so heinous. It was so horrendous. and He sent the Son to the cross in your place, because he loves you. You need to accept God's forgiveness. It gives you freedom to serve him. And let's talk about the Father's choice.. See? Now this is easy to say at this point, well, you know, you just need to remember that God affirms you, and you're all good. It's not that simple. You need God's people. You need his affirming people, and you need to affirm his people. You know what Paul is doing in this passage? He's saying, I I heard about you, I know about you, you love the Lord, we love you, we care so much about you, we just poured out our hearts, like a mother that's nursing her children, like a father who cares for his kids. So let's think about this. The next time you feel like everything's lost in your life and you feel like you're lost in a cloud of fog, can't see straight, okay, remember God chose you, adopted you in Christ, put you into his family, credited to your account the righteousness of Christ. Put all your sins on Christ at the cross. Remember that you are chosen and accepted in Christ, knowing that the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And remember that he put you into a family and you immediately had brothers and sisters, some of whom you love, some of whom you don't like. You know what marks of a healthy Christian is? You know what marks of a healthy church is? Well, you have an increasingly high view of God. He's holy. You have an increasingly humble view of yourself. You're sinful. You have a laser view on the sufficiency of scripture. Everything I need is in in the word and you have an uncompromising commitment to the local church led by a plurality of elders. You need God's affirming people. See, See, God God wanted you and God adopted you into his family and you have to affirm them too. What should you do, by the way, about what this passage reveals? So all this is true, what are you going to do? You know the Father's presence. You know you need his reassuring word. Here's what you need to do. I want you to relish his assuring word, you know, to delight in it, to love it, to accept his assurance. You have a, a present loving father who doesn't reject. Remember, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I have found that the more I worship in the word, the less I worry. And the less I worry, the more I wait upon God. And the more I wait upon God, the less I do wicked things. See, the word daily wards off wickedness. You have to daily meet with God, spend time with him, pour out your heart to him, listen to his voice in the word. Who wants to join me in Reading through the Bible at least once this year. I know it's easy to say, well, I'm gonna read through the Bible. But it's tough when you get to it. But how about try it four times? Just immerse yourself in the word of God. Just try it at least once this year. When you get done, start it again. You need God's reassuring word. How about the Father's love? Well, you need to accept his forgiveness. You need to express your love to him in worship. You worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness tremble before him all the earth. He's majestic in holiness. You gotta worship the triune God in your heart, in your home, open the word of God with the people you live with and pray and study the word. You need to come and gather. Thank you for coming and gathering with the church. Just thank God for the opportunity to live and move and have your being in Christ, believer. Brother Lawrence said this. He said, we must, during all of our labors and in all else we do, Even during our formal devotions and spoken prayers, pause for some short moment, as often indeed as we can, to worship God in the depths of our heart. To savor him, though it be but in passing, and as it were by stealth. I'm worshiping God as I'm preaching. I'm praising God as I'm preaching. He says, God is present before you, whatever you're doing. He's at the depth and center of your soul. Why not then pause from time to time, at least from that which occupies you outwardly, even from your spoken prayers, to worship him inwardly, to praise him, petition him, offer him your heart, and thank him. Worship, express your love to your loving heavenly father. And what about God's choice, the Father's choice of you? You need God's affirming people. You gotta share the love with your people and not just help people thrive in Christ, but welcome people into the family. You gotta join and stay in a solid church, and then you gotta spend lots of time fostering harmony with fellow believers and display large doses of understanding. Beloved. First John 4, 7, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So just as we love because he first loved us, we can choose to accept our brothers and sisters because God keeps accepting us. So pour out your life for people. Link arms. Help people thrive as well as come into the family. You gotta share the Father in witness, too. You gotta love lavishly and wisely. Don't be stingy with the Father's love, and don't cast your pearls before swine. The chosen choose to bear witness to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Choose to be present with people. You bless people by your presence. You don't have to say something hyper witty or humorous or profound. Just be a friend. In your witness, you need to express His love. But to whom? We'll pray about to whom and plan and then take a risk. Rosario Butterfield speaks of a radically ordinary hospitality, which is using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors the family of God. I want you to plan to take a radically ordinary risk, that you would plan to move strategically into someone's life this year, that you would befriend them, that you would affirm them and encourage them and assure them, that you would share the Father's love with them, that you, would, that you would just be a friend with the gospel and an open ear. I realize something. Talking about the Father today, right? And I know to some people, Father's a bad thing. Not everyone loves the idea of God as Father, right? From their own experience, it might be you. Uh, many have had overbearing or even abusive fathers. But I wanna say this to you as I close. God is not uh, some super glorified, perfect version of your dad. If, If you think that way and you're transferring your earthly father's sinfulness to God, you're missing the point about God's fatherly love. See, it's the other way around. Human fathers are supposed to reflect God's fatherhood. Some do it well, even though imperfectly, but others reflect the devil. Jesus said of those who opposed him, you are of your father the devil. But as it is, every believer has a loving, heavenly father, and we are to reflect him, not the other way around. God is a present, loving, choosing father who causes you to thrive in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are our loving Heavenly Father. You're always present. You're always loving. You you chose us. You you continually keep us. And I pray, Lord, that for every believer here, you would grant them much freedom and power and joy as they serve you for Jesus and the gospel, uh, for your utmost glory above all. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.